Do babies have a natural instinct to sleep? Getting a better understanding of what my partner needed and what my children really needed, that's made a huge difference. Yes, yeah. otherwise I can get a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, I think lots of parents can relate to yeah. that. You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt. What's it like to raise children when you're part of a minority? A minority whose right to equality has been debated by politicians and media. Following on from the debacle that was the plebiscite, Jen Blake decided it was time to create a queer festival for all kinds of families. And so FAMBO was born, a Sydney-based festival for all kinds of families. Jen and her wife have two kids together. She joins me in the studio now. Hi, Jen. How are you? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. Let's start with an easy question. Great. What has been the most challenging part of becoming a parent? Oh, that's not an easy question. <laughs> no, no, it's being a bit sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's sort of, it's funny because it's, it's every day, every weekend, every week, it's sort of a new set of challenges. Um, and almost the answer to that question gets uh, redefined. Um, and I think this last six months has probably been the most challenging as a parent working a full-time job, wanting to do a, another personal project um, for myself, and then also looking after two kids that have, in the last three months alone, had colds, flus, nits. Oh, nits. Uh, my five-year-old broke their leg <gasps> about three weeks ago, uh, and then we had gastro over the weekend. Oh, my God. <laughs> so talking to challenges, <laughs> for me, it's just the survival of the everyday and has been that for probably the last years. few years. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes when I'm sort of reflecting about parenting and all of the rest of the non-survival and the add-ons um, to that, uh, they're sort of few and far, they can be few and far between when a lot of the time it's just as a working parent surviving their every day, getting up, getting to work, getting home, getting them to bed, having five minutes for yourself. So the biggest surprise is just how challenging it is um, I was always a busy person and always open to doing a lot and, and being challenged, but I think I was a little shocked and have been a little shocked <laughs> and continue to be about how much you need to take on and also how resilient um, you sort of become because of that. Yeah, it's relentless. Correct. What's your What's your favourite thing about being a parent? Well, definitely not the nits and the gastro and the broken leg. <laughs> Um, I really love playing with my kids. I think it's, I've really recognised it's a space um, for me where I can be quite mindful and present and focused in a different way. Uh, and coming from someone who, you know, I am a real doer and busy kind of person and not um, someone who sits still very often, I find a real stillness being with my kids and, and particularly through play. So, yeah, doing Lego and um, making sandcastles and flying kites, like all those kinds of things. I've, I've got gotten real pleasure for myself um, from and they get pleasure from. So I think, um, yeah, that's probably been the, the best thing. When the plebiscite was in process, we had a family come in without the kids, but they came in and spoke about the impact that it had mm. on them as a family. And it was a very deep impact and very painful for them. Mm. Um, I'm just wondering what it's been like post-plebiscite that now that there's been a resounding support for same-sex marriage, has it made an impact on, on your family? I think um, it's funny to think that we're post anything 
right now. Um, and I guess in a lot of ways, I don't feel like we're sort of post a difficult time. I still feel like we're in a difficult time still and shining light on other types of difficulties and other people's difficulties. Um, my wife's American, so we're quite focused on um, American politics and, and Trump and things like that. Um, you know, and just looking at the global different crises and, and other crises that still exist very much in Australia in, um, you know, a million different marginalised communities, particularly Indigenous communities, refugee, um, you know, that there's still big crises. So for me, the post-plebiscite is unclear except for the fact that I know I need to be the best ally I can be and to be constantly feeling and being attentive to... Um, other people's plebiscite, you know, what other people are going through. And um, so in some ways, yeah, I think there's a little bit of a danger in sort of feeling like we're past something and now's this sort of excellent time um, as much as we do need to shed some of that pain and some of that sense of sort of, you know, suffering and um, shame. Um, that certainly needs to get shed. But I think it's it's also really, really, really important to to stay focused on the work that there needs to be um, done still. What about on the very personal level of your family? Mm. What's it like? Let's not. Let's just ignore the plebiscite because yeah, it's heavy, thing. isn't it? Yeah. Look, I think that's the thing. It would be interesting about. I'd, I'd like to hear more about people talking about the plebiscite. But yeah, it was really painful. I think it's still painful to talk about, even just talking about it. Then, like, it's so heavy and dark, and it's. It's a bit like how do we move on from that darkness but how do we still acknowledge that for many people there's there's still a lot to work through. Um, but, yes, we should leave it behind. Let, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it behind. <laughs> for this program. For this program. <laughs> but um, it, it does raise some questions in terms of what queer families might have to navigate that heteronormative families don't. For example, um, children are curious creatures and they're – being raised in a world that is still quite socialised to see the nuclear family as being mum, dad, two kids and a dog. Mm. We can't say that's <laughs> normal because we all know that families are a huge range of configurations. But still, our children, they're young, they have what's in front of them. How do you navigate curly questions from kids when they, because they're so honest, they might come straight up to you and say, so where's your eldest, where's his daddy? Where's her daddy? Where's his daddy? How do you yeah. talk to kids about that stuff? I think it's really interesting. Um, yeah, and that's something that happens regularly, um, if a little more indirectly than that, because I think kids aren't sure enough to be as direct because they're being so unintentional. So I think there is a little bit of explanation that's required of you. I quite enjoy it when it comes from children in a different way. I remember once um, two kids at my my um, children's daycare calling out to me across the road and over the fence. It's like, which one of you um, is the mummy of, you know, who gave, who came out of your tummy? Like, which tummy? You know, and they were shouting across the street. And it was, it came from this real place of, of genuine curiosity and genuinely, you know, they were sort of bickering about which one of them was right. And, and they were very satisfied to have that answered. Um, so, you know, I, I think in some ways it's when kids are asking, that's a real positive. 
um, because we have an opportunity to tell them. I think as parents, the things that I find more difficult is when I find my kids talking to something in either a very gendered or, um, you know, like a, a way that I didn't teach them and you have to correct them. Because there's less of an entry point and you have to sort of stop them sometimes mid-sentence or stop them when they're feeling very confident about something and sort of say, hang on, why are you saying that that's a girl's colour or what? where's that come from? Who told you, you know, I think a, a conversation I had um, with one of my children last night was around ballet and, and actually saying, hang on a second, ballet's not just for girls. Like, so haven't you heard of Barishnikov? <laughs> that's what <laughs> my wife said. Like, Let they me show you a video. <laughs> so I think it's... Those are the things I found a little bit more interesting and challenging. I think when kids come to you with questions, whether they be your kids or other kids, there's a real curiosity. And I think I'm a person who is very curious. Um, I think curiosity is a really excellent quality and a necessary quality for young people and kids, and they should retain that. I think when we start shutting down curiosity and shaming curiosity, then people don't want to learn. They don't want to open up their own vulnerability to ask. So I think children really, we could probably learn quite a bit from the way that they navigate the things they don't understand, um, rather than obviously those sort of old school mentalities of, oh, look away, don't ask, and all those kinds of things. Speaking about the difference between children and adults, I can't quite fathom people ever asking you this sort of question because it just seems a totally out of line. But you do hear um, people debating things when, when it comes to same-sex families saying, oh, you know, children need a male role model to grow up into mm-hmm. well-adjusted adults. And some, you know, even if that sounds strange to me, I'm sure mm. for those people it's coming from a place of their own understanding and socialisation. But have you ever had adults make those sorts of comments to you and um, how do you, do you engage with those sorts of people? Do you walk away? How do you deal with that? I don't think I have ever been confronted by that. I've been very, very fortunate. I have, um, you know, my parents, uh, but, you know, both my wife and my families are very supportive, very involved grandparents. Um, uh, you know, I've never been made to sort of, Reflect. I've never been in a position to really reflect or on my difference that as much as other people obviously would have, um, and I live in quite a protected place in the, the inner city, you know, in the inner west. So, um, you know, I, I haven't encountered that personally. No, I think that that's sort of the surprise for a lot of people like myself during the plebiscite is that that was maybe for some of us the first time that we'd really felt that attack and that sort of very that judgment. Um, because I think it was coming just from more places and people felt more open to do that. I think the attacks that have happened on queer families have been pretty much, have just been rebuted so quickly um, and concisely with facts that there isn't really much in that debate at all. I think one of the most interesting sort of conversations or debates around it that I saw was in the Gaby Baby documentary. And I thought when, when Maya Newell interviewed Fred Nile, I thought that was a very, very interesting um, unpacking of that conversation. And I thought it really demonstrated to me just how much everyone's own personal experience of family um, makes them think about what is right in family. So, you know, had Fred Nile talking about, you know, that he had a very poor relationship with his father and, you know, all this stuff about him. And you, you sort of think, this is actually about you, that you think 
there's something that maybe you missed and that everyone needs. And I think, you know, that happens a lot um, in parenting. I think that happens a lot when you sort of think about, oh, we should move somewhere with a backyard or, you know, I grew up with uh, my my mum not working and so therefore you know it's like constantly as parents we're we're sort of trying to hold ourselves to these unrealistic sort of standards and and hold each other to them as well so I think in that sense queer families are held to account of providing some level of normalcy but in the same way that all parents are and I think none of us like it um, <laughs> that's true but I do also think as I said I come from a place um of privilege of living where I live. And I also live where I live for a reason and f- and is where I feel very comfortable and where I know that my children's daycare fly the rainbow flag and that they're going to be able to connect with other people, that I can connect with other queer families. Um, but I do think that there are people who obviously are much more vulnerable than that and that is a very real problem that there's people that um, that think they can just roll up and make judgment. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm speaking with Jen Blake. She's the Artistic Director of FAMBO. It's a Sydney-based festival for all kinds of families. First time it's running this year. Jen's just taking time off her full-time job to do this other job, (laughs) which is incredible. Let's talk about FAMBO a bit. Was it in response to the plebiscite that you decided to put this together? Yeah, it definitely was. I think... um you know, from the beginning of that whole year last year uh, with the election of Trump and then, you know, being very focused on the news and the media and, and the debates that happened in the US after that and then the debates that started to happen um, more openly in in Australia, um, it just it started to feel heavier and heavier and heavier. And I think I'm just the sort of person who needs to convert some of that kind of negative energy into action. Um, so, yeah, it definitely was a reaction to that. And also during a time when I started to realise that it was individuals that were making things happen, like I kind of, um, you know, followed certain individuals during that time and you sort of think, actually, there's a lot of influence that, that one individual can have. So doing a project of your own can actually make, you know, a big difference uh, and can start to shift culture. So, yeah, I really felt compelled that um, this could be something that was really great and necessary that didn't exist and that also I had the skills to do. So once I kind of recognised that and then had all the fire of, you know, I felt very compelled, <laughs> um, which I guess is how stuff happens. You know, it definitely, there was a pain point at that time and, and um, you know, I, I hear, I listen to podcasts about startups and, and things like that. But, yeah, I think a good startup or a good product, anything that you develop that you bring into the world, it starts from a place of being a a real need. And I think for myself as well as others, this um, has definitely come from an actual need to celebrate, to be with our families while we're doing that, um, to really look at the, you know, how fabulous the queer culture actually is, the diversity of it, um, and just really enjoy it rather than just sort of be so heavy around it and and just doing marches together. (laughs) How do you put together a festival that does all those things? Mm. Like what kind of things in a practical sense? <laughs> yeah. What do you look for? What do I look for? I think... Um, Hopefully there's lots of dancing. Yeah, there is some <laughs> voguing, guaranteed. <laughs> look, I think it sort of almost goes back to that first question you asked me about what I enjoy and, and the answer being play. I think for adults, when we go to... Um, anything now that's it's semi-designed for kids. We love participating in that ourselves. And I know that GOMA has a children's art centre that's really excellent. And there's other um, comparable spaces now where children and adults can 
you know, enjoy really tactile experiences. So I think I wanted to start from a place of sort of play and exploration for adults and children to do together. And I wanted to um, then invite contemporary artists into that and really get them to respond to to what the premise of the festival was about. And, and that was the conversations that I had with them was, you know, I'm interested in your practice. I don't want you to completely change course in your practice to meet um, children and families, I want you to find a place in which they will come to meet your practice. So I think um, it's really interesting because I think sometimes we try to over-curate and over-dilute um, ideas for kids when actually I think there's like a lot of points of connection, um, particularly in contemporary art, um, that exists already for children. So I do think that you could remove children from this whole festival altogether and have a bunch of adults go and have a really good time, um, you know, making things and dancing and things like that. The fact that we can actually bring our kids and do it together um, is, you know, what I'm really excited about. Well, it sounds like a fabulous festival. Jen, thanks so much for coming in and chatting with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's Jen Blake. She's the Artistic Director of FAMBO. And FAMBO is happening on Saturday, the 29th of September in Redfern, Sydney. If you'd like more information, just head to our website, kindling.com.au, and search for FAMBO. That's F-A-M-B-O. You've been listening to Kindling Conversation. If you enjoyed it, there's plenty more where that came from. Find other stories and interviews at our website. Just head to kindling.com.au.